prayer okay Jesus we're all well aware that unless you speak to us and open our hearts and uh, give us eyes to see and, and a soft and a pliable heart and ears to hear then we're undone so I just pray that uh, you would take your word and let it accomplish Lord your purpose that it would draw us closer to you and enlighten our hearts and we ask it in the name of Jesus Amen. A couple of weeks ago, we did a, a quick overview of the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to do another quick overview. This would be a book that you could go through verse by verse and at least every second verse you would have to stop and say, what in the world does he mean by that? <clears throat> but we won't do that because unlike Philippians, I don't have a year or two <laughs> or more. <laughs> you know, most people, or at least many, would say that Solomon wrote this book, and I think he did. But there are some that think that uh, it's a compilation of wisdom literature that was written, put together sometime after Solomon's death. And it was written to a people of Israel that had been under a conqueror's boot for many, many years. In the case of the southern kingdom of Judah for about 300 years, and in the case of the northern kingdom of Israel, over 400 years. There were the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And then there were the Persians, and then after the Persians, the Greeks. And you can imagine that a people, having lost their identity for so long, and their sense of the presence of God, they would need someone to bring them back into an understanding of God's purpose for their life, and what life was like apart from God, as if they didn't already know. But regardless of the author, whether it's Solomon or not, and again, I think it, it is, the book searches for an answer to the question, what's the advantage of man's work and his wisdom? And the word advantage can also be one of the other translations is prophet. And that word prophet Jesus uses in the New Testament when he says, for what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? 
And this is pretty much what Solomon is saying too. What does it profit a man if he gains all these things in the world and he loses his life? In Ecclesiastes, the word advantage and related words like profit occur 18 times. And another important word that we find, one that occurs almost immediately, actually in the second verse of the of the first or the second verse of the first chapter is the word vanity, which can also be translated emptiness, futility, uselessness. And that word occurs in its related words over 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. So once again, to get a feel for the book of Ecclesiastes, let's start at the very beginning, just briefly. The first two verses of chapter 1 read the word of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You know, with a beginning like this, you can understand why a lot of people don't get very far in the book of Ecclesiastes. (laughs) They run from it almost as fast as they do the book of Leviticus. But what he's saying here, when he says vanity of vanities, he's saying your life, all you do, is like a, a wisp of vapor. It's like a puff of wind. It's just breath. It's vanity. It's the emptiness that 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 you can't put anything with. It just comes to nothing. It's the nearest thing to zero, your life. It's the sum total. And this is a pretty desperate situation, as you might imagine. It's not about what's just momentary. It's not about what's going to pass quickly. It's about what's pointless. He says, all is vanity. The whole thing is futile. Well, what's the whole thing? Does the whole thing include godliness and God? The the preacher here, and some translations talk about some kind of an instructor or a professor or somebody that's giving wisdom to a congregation or to a gathered group. But anyway, this preacher in Ecclesiastes, he's not in any kind of a hurry to give us an answer because what he wants us to do is look clearly at the whole world we see, the whole world we live in, as he answers or he tries to give us an answer wants us to see an answer, in other words, before he gives us the conclusion of the whole thing. And his conclusion at the end of Ecclesiastes is the same conclusion that all the wise men of the Bible read. And the conclusion is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But this preacher is not going to tell us this at the very beginning. He's going to wait until the end, when we're in a desperate position or a desperate place that we need to see what the answer is. There are hints of this all the way through the book, but mainly he wants to see how far we're going to get without the foundation 
of the fear of the Lord. Right after saying all is vanity, in the second verse, he continues in verse 3, asking, What advantage does man have in all of his work? And then the phrase that's so important, under the sun. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, this phrase, under the sun, is repeated very often, and what it means is a life lived apart from God. A life without any thought or obedience to God. That's life under the sun. And as we read Ecclesiastes, we see how the preacher arrives at his conclusion that life apart from God was one of emptiness. In the first chapter, verses 12 through 18 reads, I, the preacher, have been the king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I set my mind to seek and explore my wisdom by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. That's one of those verses that you could spend 30 minutes talking about. How do you get more pain when you get more knowledge and more wisdom? So again, life under the sun is a life lived apart from God. He says he set his mind. Or he applied his, applied his heart to explore by wisdom all things. Remember, this is not some minor official we're talking about. This is the king of Israel. This is the one that's more, that has more wisdom than any man that has ever lived, obviously apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. But of any natural man, no one has ever had the wisdom of Solomon. And he's the anointed king by fiat of God, to rule. But even though he's anointed, and he's wise, even a man of God can't fix the world in the condition that it's in. But he sets his mind, he says, to know wisdom. He wants to test all the fruits that the world has to offer. He isn't just going to say things don't satisfy or bring life apart from God. He's going to show us that they lead to despair and death. In essence, Solomon is telling us the same thing Jesus told us when he said, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. In the second chapter, in the first verse, Solomon says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasures. 
So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. And I don't think in 20-some years I have ever used this verse in 1 Kings that Bill used before. And I don't appreciate you using it today. (laughs) But Solomon said he was going to test himself. And he'd been tested before. And the time he was, one of the times he was tested was the Queen of Sheba when she came to him in 1 Kings, this 10th chapter. But I'm going to be more concise than Bill was. I always am. (laughs) That verse says, Now when the Queen of Sheba heard, heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. And after meeting with Solomon... She confessed that she hadn't believed all that her people had told him, her, about Solomon and his wisdom. But now she saw that the report that she had received didn't come close to even half of what was true. So now Solomon plans to test pleasures by spending spending time with them and observing what happens to him when he does this, he wants to learn how his heart responds to things under the sun. So what does he try? He tries wine, houses, gardens. He tries slaves, flocks and herds, gold and silver, concubines, fame, all of these things. And then he says, in this 10th verse, he says, All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all of my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Everything I saw, if I wanted it, I did it. I gathered it to me. And it only takes a few more verses after this for Solomon Solomon to tell us the result of this experiment, the result of these tests. And it's a sad commentary that very few of us want to read what the results were and pay attention to it. You know, teenagers rebel, most of us. And a lot of people have midlife crises. Because they want to seek lasting pleasure out of the same things that Solomon sought lasting pleasures out of. Everybody thinks that there's a winning lottery ticket just around the corner for them. And the few that ever get it find out that that doesn't bring lasting pleasure either. And the reason it doesn't is because created beings and created things only have so much that they can offer us. In verses 17 through 19, the preacher gives us his conclusion. He says, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity, emptiness. 
and a striving after wind. I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must have it, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor in which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is emptiness. So that the preacher looks at everything under the sun in a life lived for self and not for God. And what he sees is distasteful and worthy of tears not joy. The wise die just like the fool. Creation and men alike groan. The gain that we think we have proves to be empty. All he works for is eventually lost and no one's going to remember him. The way things are, that's what the preacher hates. You know, for a contrast, when he says he hates life, we need to look at some other things to see what he really means here. And for a contrast, if you look at Elijah and his life, we get to the point where Elijah wanted to die because of exhaustion, because of trauma, and a fear that he was the only one left. What he needed was rest, He needed food, and he needed for God to show him that he was not alone in a land full of idols. We look at Jonah, and Jonah wanted to die because he hated the people God called him to love, and he hated the sermons that God called him to preach to these people. Anger was eating him up, and he didn't want to change. He needed time. He needed the words of God and he needed the grace of God to change. Job wanted to die because he had lost his family and then he was in great suffering. But Solomon is not grieving because of spiritual boredom or spiritual hardness. He's not wallowing in self-pity like Elijah was. He's not suffering terrible loss, and he's not in emotional depression. When he says, I hated life, he's different than these men. What he sees is this world the way it is now. And he knows what it used to be like in Eden. And he despairs because he knows what God created it to be. And then he sees what's going on, and the comparison is devastating. He knows what's been lost. The Westminster Larger Catechism describes Eden that's been lost. It doesn't use that word, Eden lost, but it's what it is. And it says... The way things are now, there exists blindness of mind, a reprobate sense, strong delusions, hardness of heart, horror of conscience, vile affections. This is Eden lost. This is the world that we're in now, not the way it was created. 
Solomon tells us plainly that he hates the state of things. That's what grieves him. He sees others sin and he sins himself. And he longs for an end of it for this kind of life. In the little essay that he wrote called The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis speaks about uh, our fruitless search among the uh, joys offered under the sun. And he said, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Solomon saw what he thought would be pleasing, and he found out that it was in fact empty. He hated that what God had created, good, had become dangerous and filled with empty enticements. In the third chapter, the eighth verse, the preacher says, There is a time to love and a time to hate. And when he says there's a time to hate, he means it's right and good to hate the misery, the sin, and the death that ravages, ravages us, us in this once Eden world. Psalm 97, 10 says, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Eden wasn't like this. And the preacher wants us to hate what it's come to be, just like he hates it. In Ecclesiastes 2 and also in chapters 8 and 9, the question in one form or or another seems to be, why be wise when it too, along with pleasure, will gain us nothing in this world? What's the point? Ecclesiastes 2.15 says, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. If there's no lasting gain under the sun, and nothing under the sun can change these conditions that we're in, and the wise end up the same way as the fool, then what's the point of being wise or good at all? Solomon sees that often under the sun, foolishness doesn't seem to have any negative consequences. And so he's wondering, why bother? In in chapter 8, 10 through 11, he says, Then I saw the wicked buried, They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. He looks at these people and all their lives, these foolish ones, went to church, the holy place, 
All their lives, these people that caused nothing or cared nothing for wisdom These people were honored in public places. They gained a reputation. In fact, they were wicked toward God, and they were wicked toward others, and they were never caught. They received honor for their wickedness. Their crimes remained hidden, and the victim remained victims. The system moves slowly. Years go by. And even... If the wicked are caught, the penalty is often mild compared to the suffering of the victim. Everyone has done things, every one of us, that were wrong and for which we were never caught. Every one of us. We did wrong things, we weren't caught, lightning didn't strike us, the world didn't come to an end, nobody found out. Things went on the way they were. One writer humorously wrote this. The rain falls upon the just and also the unjust fellows. But mostly it falls upon the just because the unjust have the just's umbrellas. <laughs> and that seems to be the case, doesn't it? Another reason we, have, we question maybe a life without wisdom is because being wise gives us no immunity under the sun. The same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. Solomon says, as the good one is, so is the sinner. The same event happens to us all. And sometimes it's even worse than that. Ecclesiastes 8.14 says, There's a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. Pursuing wisdom, wisdom does not mean that cancer, dementia, flood or heartaches won't happen to us. Tornadoes don't just choose the bad houses in an area. The wise don't receive immunity from hardship under the sun. Even the very wise can break bones and go to the dentist or be sentenced to death unjustly on a cross. Wisdom is better than pleasure or might, but it's not a savior. Ecclesiastes 9.11 says, Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happens to them all. The preachers teaching Israel and us that we live in the same world as everybody else. God is not our God so that we can ever rest while everyone else is going through hardships. We can't use God to get gain in a world that's no longer Eden. 
So be wise will guarantee justice or protection from calamity or worldly advancement. Why pursue it anyway? Why be good if it brings no advantage, it provides no security, and it can't change the world? Why not be rich, foolish, brash, honored and respected instead by the world? Even though wisdom won't save us or secure us, nevertheless, the preacher chooses wisdom. Why? Ecclesiastes 2.13. When I saw there is no there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. Or then I saw. We seek wisdom for its own sake. Not for what it's going to do for us. And because wisdom, though it may not change the world, it does change us. Solomon says, who's like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. And in 8.5 he says, Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. With wisdom, our hardened hearts become less damaged. We treat our neighbors more kindly. We lessen our pursuit of meaningless things. We pursue wisdom because our lives are in God's hands and wisdom testifies to the character of God. Ecclesiastes 9.1 says, But all this I have laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Wisdom's a better way of life for people. 9.17 says, The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among idols. When people are not misled, when they're not mistreated, when they're not screamed at, their countenance changes. The darkness retreats. And as we pursue wisdom, God will judge us, and God loves wisdom. Ecclesiastes 8, 12 13 says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be so with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Imagine Imagine a basketball team made up of seven and eight years old. That's a horrifying thought, I know, but imagine that. You got two teams made up seven and eight year olds. One team cheats, trips, pushes, and uses abusive language. And imagine that the referees are friends of the coaches on the abusive team. 
And it becomes obvious in their refereeing that they're biased toward this abusive team. Now imagine you coach the other team. What do you tell your players? You can tell them to quit, that there's no point. There's no point playing a game you can't win. And besides that, they're pushing, shoving, and tripping, and you might get hurt. Or you can tell them to play the same way the other team is playing. They break the rules, we break the rules. They hit, we hit. They cheat, we cheat. Solomon looks at both options. He understands what it means to play the game the way it's being played, and he hates it. But if he walks away, then emptiness, then folly wins. It becomes the only game in town because he's walked away. If he joins in and he fights folly with folly, if he fights emptiness with emptiness, then folly still wins because it's still on the court and only folly is there and folly wins then too. The preacher hates this life the way it's played, but he chooses to fight the life he hates with wisdom. It's like he's saying, I will do this not because I think I'm going to win, because I probably won't, but at least wisdom remains on the court. At least emptiness won't be the only game in town. Like Solomon, we don't play the game to win or to gain to ourselves. We play because God, we play because of God and what a relationship with God does for us and what it does in others. Wisdom is the way God's people choose to make a stand, even if it means being overlooked, even if it means being slandered, misused, or forgotten. Better to have Jesus and no money and no status in this world than to have both money and status without Jesus. Apart from God, all is vanity, which is what Solomon says. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we look at things and we forget who we are and what we are. And we envy the things of the world. And we need to look at the end and see what it brings. That um, maybe to the world's point of view, you may as well pursue pleasure because everybody dies. But that's not the end. The end is what you say the end is. And the end is life full of glory, unspeakable joy. We see, Lord, what Eden used to be. And we can read your word and see what it's going to be again, only in an even greater way. And so, Lord, we abide and we pursue your wisdom now, knowing that um, all things are in your hands and that wisdom is better than folly. 
And we thank you for your word in the name of Jesus. Amen.